Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Good morning to those of you who are here in the sanctuary, up in the balcony, in the commons, those of you who are worshiping at home, welcome to First Baptist Church. And we are going to launch a new sermon series, just a four-parter, four, four-parter, called A Whale Tale, Lessons from the Life of Jonah. So please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 1 which admittedly can be a little tricky to find, okay? But if you take your Bibles, does anybody have like Bibles with pages with them this morning? A few of you do. If you put your fingers, your thumbs right in the middle and open up, you're likely going to land where? Psalms, all right, Psalms. And when you do, if you will just take a right and keep going until you land on Jonah, or if you go to Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and turn left and work your way back to Jonah, and if neither of those work, you know what you can do? Ask an Awana kid. <laughs> Ask an Awana kid, and they'll, uh, they'll help you find it, all right? As you are turning, let's talk about the setting of the book, all right? Always important when you begin a new book of the Bible that you do a little bit of investigative work, that you find out, hey, what's the background of all this? Because it will have a lot to say about the meaning of the book. And so let's first identify Jonah's literary genre. I like how that just flows, genre which is historical narrative, meaning that the events described in this book, they really happened. Big fish and all. This really happened. Now, this is in contrast to some who would say that Jonah is a work of fiction, that it's a myth or a fable that exists simply to teach a spiritual lesson, kind of like the parables that Jesus taught in the New Testament. So there are some who hold to that belief, but the fact of the matter is that Jonah is historical narrative. And you say, well, Chad, how do you know that? Two reasons one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. First of all, the Old Testament places the prophet Jonah in history. The Old Testament places the prophet Jonah in history, identifying him as a real living person in a real place in a real time. Check out 2 Kings 14.23. Did you know that Jonah was in the Old Testament before the book of Jonah? 2 Kings 14.23, it says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Now, I don't know about you, but as I look at this, there's a lot of specific detail creating a historical setting here. In fact, it'd be hard to be more specific than this. And then just two verses after this, it says in verse 25, it speaks of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. So this verse in 2 Kings, it places Jonah the prophet in a very specific historical context, identifying him as not a fictional character, but a very real person. But there is also New Testament evidence that Jonah is historical narrative, and specifically, Jesus. Jesus refers to the events of Jonah as history. Check out Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, where our Savior says this. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we see here this correlation that Jesus makes between his historical burial and resurrection and Jonah's historical burial in the belly of the great fish, causing us to conclude that, hey, you know what? They both really happened. 
And so based on the Old Testament and New Testament evidence, I think it's very, with great confidence, that we conclude that the book of Jonah is historical narrative, recounting events that actually happened. Next, let's talk about how the book is classified in the scriptures. It is, its classification is one of the minor prophets. One of the minor prophets. Now, the Bible has four major prophets, and it has 12 minor prophets. What's the difference? Are, are major prophets more important than minor prophets? Not at all. The difference is that minor prophets are shorter in length than the major prophets. That's all. Minor prophets are shorter in length than the major prophets. Uh, for example, the book of Jonah, it's only 58 verses long. It's only 58 verses long, and that's divided into four chapters, and so there are going to be four parts to this sermon series. And because of its brevity, it is classified as a minor prophet in contrast to the longer major prophets. But make no mistake, listen carefully, there are major truths in the minor prophets. There are major truths in the minor prophets, and we are sure to be confronted with some of these major truths in the book of Jonah. Now, how many English literature kinds of folks are here today? You just love all things English and literature and reading and books and a few of you, okay. Um, well, you're going to love this because there are two literary devices that are used in Jonah to communicate this truth. And the first is this, irony, irony, where truth is communicated using surprising reversals. You see, characters in the book of Jonah act often in ways that are opposite of what we would expect. For example, we would expect the prophet of God to act in a certain way, but then he doesn't. And we would expect pagan sailors or wicked Ninevites to act in a certain way, and then they don't. This is irony, and it is used extensively in the book of Jonah. We'll be sure to point it out. It's used to capture our attention and to make some impactful points. And the book also uses a second literary device, which is satire. Satire, where truth is communicated using biting ridicule. Now, none of you are satirical, right? You wouldn't do that. But we do see it a lot in our current political climate, don't we? Satire is very popular. And what satire does is vividly expose the flaws of characters. And the prophet Jonah will be at the crosshairs of this satire. And there are going to be points in this book where we're just going to ridicule Jonah and say, you idiot, how could you think that? How could you act that way? Until we realize that the subject of the satire goes beyond Jonah. It goes to the nation of Israel. And then ultimately, it goes to us. For the fact of the matter is that we are Jonah. We are Jonah. And the literary devices of irony and satire are going to strike right at our hearts, placing us under some fierce conviction, which sounds terrible, but it's actually a really, really good thing. So the genre is historical narrative. The classification is one of the minor prophets. The place is Israel and specifically the northern kingdom. Israel, the northern kingdom, at least this is where our story begins. We're going to meander and wander a bit throughout the Mediterranean world. As we look at the map, you'll remember that in 930 BC, after the death of King Solomon, kind of this golden age of Israel, um, there was a civil war amongst God's people. And the result was division, division into a northern kingdom whose capital was Samaria and a southern kingdom whose capital was Jerusalem. And the nation was known as Judah. Well, Jonah is a prophet to the northern kingdom, to Israel, during the reign of King Jeroboam II. The reign of King Jeroboam II. Now, Jeroboam II. 
Kind of a mixed bag with this guy. On one hand, he led Israel in a season of material prosperity. Um, For example, he enlarged the borders of Israel to where they had been in the days of David and Solomon. That's a good thing, right? There's a certain material strength to that, but he was also an intensely wicked king, and he led Israel away from God, which is obviously very bad. And so this was a season in which Israel was rich materially, but they were poor spiritually. In fact, the prophet Amos who was a contemporary of Jonah, he spoke out against this wickedness of Israel. That's an assignment I believe Jonah wishes he would have had, but instead he got something else, as we'll see. Now, one last thing you need to know about the timing of the book of Jonah. The dominating power of the day was the Assyrian Empire. The dominating power of the day was the Assyrian Empire. Let's take a look at the map. Um, So you see this big area here known as the Assyrian Empire, and you can see how small Israel and Judah were in comparison. And you can see circled here on the right-hand side a city called Nineveh. Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It was located about 550 miles from Jerusalem in what is today Iraq. Iraq. So it's interesting how, you know, even the events of the world today, connection to events from many, many years ago. Well, Nineveh will become very prominent in our story, but before we get to the story, it's essential to understand just how vicious the Assyrians were. Check this out, okay? And this is going to be probably a little rated R this morning, okay? So if your kid's in here, put your hands over your ears, but here's the deal. It was the practice of the Assyrians that they would, when they captured someone, they would cut off their legs and they would cut off one arm. Now, why just one arm? It was so that they could shake the hand of their victims as they died. Okay, this was the the mindset, the nature of the Assyrians. They were pure evil, and so you can imagine how the nation of Israel felt about them, living in constant terror of them, In fact, it's probably likely that some from Israel and even some from Judah, that maybe some of their loved ones fell prey to some of these violent, vicious actions of the Assyrians and would have had much hatred toward them, which will play a major role in our story here in Jonah. So that is the genre historical narrative, the classification of the minor prophets, the places Israel, the northern kingdom, the time is the reign of King Jeroboam II, during which Assyria was a brutally oppressive empire. Now, you ready? Let's dive into the text. And what we're going to do today is we're going to um, tell the story in chapter 1, verse by verse, but then we're going to pause along the way to identify what we're going to call truths from the tempest. Truths from the tempest. Some points of application to make the story very personal, because remember, in this satire, we are Jonah. We are Jonah. So here we go. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and we're going to stop right there already, because right away we learn some important information about our main character. His name is Jonah, which literally means dove, and what do doves symbolize historically? Peace, right? And he is the son of Amittai, which literally means faithfulness, and without getting too far ahead of ourselves here, does anybody see the literary device of irony already at work in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 1? Those of you who know the story, and as the story develops, we'll see Jonah as anything but a faithful messenger of peace. 
He'll actually prove to be quite the opposite. He'll be an unfaithful messenger who, instead of bringing peace, brings a tempest. And so irony is already at work in our story, capturing our attention. Well, what was the word that Jonah received from the Lord? Let's go on to verse 2 where it says, Arise, Jonah, and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, there's something very unusual happening here. Do you know what it is? Typically, God called prophets to speak to his people in their own land, like the prophet Amos that we mentioned earlier. But here, what is he calling Jonah to do? Go to a foreign land and speak to those people. That was not typical prophet protocol. And this isn't just any foreign land or foreign people. Who is this? This is the Assyrian Empire that we're talking about. This is Nineveh, their capital, making it the very center of wickedness and brutality. God wants Jonah to travel there and to preach to them a message of repentance, to tell them you're evil and you need to change your ways. Now, from Jonah's perspective, how do you think that's going to go over? Well, after they laugh at him, they'll most likely cut off his legs and cut off his one arm and shake his hand as he dies. This is an exceedingly hard thing that God is calling Jonah to do. And this is the first of our truths from the tempest. Number one, God calls his people to do hard things that require faith. God calls his people to do hard things that require faith, and that certainly includes you and me. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, 24. This is what it is to be a Christian This is what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's what God is calling Jonah to do. Jonah, deny yourself. Follow me even to the point of death because it's there that you'll truly find your life. That's what he's calling us to do. Hard things that require faith beyond our comfort zones, beyond our limits, beyond what is safe, and sometimes beyond what makes earthly sense. Author Mark Batterson said it this way. He said, quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. And if we're honest... That's our pursuit, isn't it? To cling to this life, to seek to preserve this life, to be comfortable, to be safe, to be secure. Does this describe you today? It described Jonah. But instead, truth from the tempest number one, God calls his people to do hard things that require faith. It raises the question, what hard thing is God calling you to do right now? What hard thing is God calling you to do right now? Let me give you some possibilities. Of forgiveness is hard, isn't it? Sacrificing yourself for others is hard. Remaining faithful in a troubled marriage is hard. Admitting that you have an addiction and that you need help is hard. Handling your money God's way is hard. Sharing your faith in a hostile world is hard. The Sermon on the Mount, read that recently? It's hard. And yet, God calls us to do hard things that require faith. And so I ask you again, what hard thing is God calling you to do right now? 
Well, Jonah was called to go to Nineveh. What would he do when he was called to do this hard thing? Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Hard to blame him, right? Who wants their arms and legs cut off? And do you know what would be even worse from Jonah's perspective than having your arms and legs cut off? What if this mission succeeded? What if those despicable Ninevites actually repented and received God's mercy? That'd be even worse. So when Jonah was called by God to do a hard thing that required faith, Jonah disobeyed. He sinned. He set off for Tarshish when he was supposed to go to Nineveh. And Tarshish must have been an intentional destination because if you look at the map, it's in exactly the opposite direction of Nineveh. You see that? And not only that, but Tarshish was as far as Jonah could go in the opposite direction from Nineveh. For Tarshish was located on the westernmost part of the Mediterranean Sea, on the coast of Spain, about 2,500 miles away. And this brings us to the second truth from the tempest, which is the devil will always provide a ship to Tarshish. The devil will always provide a ship to Tarshish. He'll always provide what appears to be an easier way, a safer way, a more comfortable way, a seemingly happier way, but which is ultimately a disobedient and destructive way. And so when we are called by God to do hard things that require faith, we will also be confronted with a choice. Uh, Nineveh or Tarshish? It's black and white. There's no third alternative because any deviation from whole obedience is disobedience. Will we obey God and do the hard thing with the presence of Almighty God, or will we disobey and do the sinful thing, as it says here, away from the presence of God? That is the choice that we have. And by the way, there are two things, I believe, that will help us to get on the right ship. Two things that will help us to get on the right ship. They are very simply biblical truth and biblical community. The more that you immerse yourself in these things, the more that you commit yourself to them, the greater the odds that you are going to reject the ship to Tarshish that the devil provides and that you will get on the ship to Nineveh. Now, what's wrong with what I just said? Nineveh is actually a journey on land, but for the purposes of the spiritual application, just work with me, okay? If you neglect either of these, if you neglect biblical truth, if you neglect biblical community, there's a good chance that the devil is going to deceive you into that ship to Tarshish. And Pastor Mack will tell you, as pastors, we see it over and over and over again. Which raises the question, church, are you on a ship to Tarshish even as we speak? Are you on a ship to Tarshish even as we speak? I have no doubt that some of you are. God has called you to do a hard thing by faith, but you got scared, you got uncomfortable, and you became unwilling. And predictably, at just the right time, the devil provided a ship to Tarshish in the opposite direction, away from the presence of the Lord. And you may have been deceived even into thinking that, you know what, everything is okay. I'm on that ship to Tarshish, and it's smooth sailing so far. It'll be fine. God's okay with it. He wants me to be happy after all. The second half of verse 3 tells us what the future is for the ship to Tarshish. Verse 3, Jonah, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now you see the repetition there, don't you? He went down, he went down. 
I'd encourage you to highlight, underline, circle whenever that phrase shows up in the book of Jonah because it's going to come more and more. We're going to see it repeated again and again using repetition to make a point. And what's the point? It's this. Truth from the Tempest number three. The way to Tarshish is always down. The way to Tarshish is always, always down. It's a downward spiral of sin and its consequences. Again, Satan will dupe you into thinking that all is going to be fine, that God will turn and look the other way, that he doesn't really care, you're going to be all right, that you're actually maybe even headed in the right direction after all, and you may even surround yourself with voices that tell you so. You can always find people that will tell you what you want to hear rather than what you need to hear. That's why it's so important to have biblical truth and biblical community at work in your life. Satan will always provide people to invite you, entice you onto that ship to Tarshish, but Satan is a liar. He's a really good liar, but he's a liar. And deep down, we know better. The truth of the matter is that the way to Tarshish is always down, and that's exactly where Jonah is headed in verse 4, where it says, but the Lord hurled, it's the same terminology, it's the same word as when King Saul hurled a spear at David when he was playing music for him. It's the same word. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Here's a question for you. Was the storm that God hurled an act of God's judgment or God's mercy? I I believe it's both. I believe it's both. On one hand, our sin always has consequences which contain elements of God's judgment. As it says in Numbers 32, 23, and some of you need to hear this this morning, you may be sure that your sin will find you out. But this storm is also an instrument of God's loving discipline for Jonah, fulfilling what it says in Hebrews 12, 7. I'm so thankful for this verse. It's a painful verse. It says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, as children. For, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. Like any good parent, any good loving parent, God disciplines because he loves us. That's what he was doing with Jonah here, which brings us to the fourth truth from the tempest. Sometimes our storms are God's severe mercy. Sometimes our storms are God's severe mercy. Now, those are two words that don't typically go together, right? Severe and mercy but I think this is a perfect illustration of it. Um, Our storms are, are mercy because they're for our good, but they are considered severe because they hurt. And God will hurt us to heal us. God will do absolutely whatever is necessary to wake us up and bring us to repentance. And sometimes he will bring a storm. Now, that doesn't mean that every hardship that we experience in our lives is God's discipline, but sometimes, sometimes it is. C.S. Lewis said it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And Jonah was experiencing a great amount of pain in the midst of the storm. It raises the question, are you presently experiencing God's severe mercy? 
Do you find yourself in the midst of a storm that upon examination it would seem that God has hurled this storm into your life for discipline because you are on a ship to Tarshish headed in the wrong direction and he loves you so much he will not let you go without a fight and he is going to do everything necessary, everything possible to bring you back to where you belong. The Lord disciplines those he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. What is God saying to you? in the midst of your pain. All of this reminds us that sometimes our storms are God's severe mercy. On to verse 5. It says, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Now, in case we've underestimated the, the severity of the storm and the direness of this situation, these are experienced sailors they have seen many, many things on the water. There have been many, many storms that they have been through, and yet this storm has made them afraid. There's something about this storm that's different. And so they do two things. Number one, they throw their valuable cargo overboard so that the ship wouldn't ride so low in the waves and not take on as much water. That's why they did that. They threw over the valuable cargo. Now remember, their job is to make sure that this cargo arrives safely at their destination in Tarshish, and they are so desperate. It's like, we don't care the consequences. Throw the cargo overboard. Number two, they cry out to their own gods, of which they had many. And according to their theology, someone must have offended the god of the sea for them to be in this terrible storm. They seem to recognize that this is not a natural tempest, this is a supernatural tempest, and they understand that some God has been offended. And it is at this point that we run into another big fat dose of irony. The second half of verse 5 says, but Jonah had gone down, there it is again, into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him in verse 6 and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now you talk about irony. Who's praying? Bunch of pagan sailors. Who's sleeping? The prophet of God. Should be the other way around, right? That's irony. Jonah is even labeled by the captain. This stings. Wake up, you sleeper. It has become his identity. How do you explain Jonah sleeping during this storm that's tearing apart this ship? The answer lies in truth from the tempest number six. Now, you say, what happened to number five? Your notes get a little wonky here. We skipped number five, and we'll go back to it. Somehow, this is Sarah Reitz's fault. <laughs> I haven't figured out quite yet how to pin it on her, but it's her fault, Okay. In reality, we have awesome people who work in our office. Carrie Hannes, Sarah Reitz, please tell them thank you from time to time, okay? Um, we're on number six. We'll go back to number five. Number six, the trip to Tarshish numbs our souls to sleep. And the point is this. Some of you have been there. We've all been there. Disobedience is exhausting. Disobedience is exhausting. Sin has a way of deadening us of hardening us and generally putting us in a spiritually sleepy state, dulling our spiritual senses. And so it was with Jonah. While the sailors and the captain are praying and acting, Jonah, he's sleeping. Author Tim Keller said it like this. He said, sin always hardens the conscience 
It locks you in the prison of your own defensiveness and rationalizations and eats you up slowly from the inside. That's what was going on with Jonah, and it exhausted him. As he ran from God, he slept. Which raises the question, church, are you asleep this morning to the things of God? Now, I don't mean just because the sermon got a little dry and you nodded off for a minute, okay? But are you asleep to the things of God? Are your spiritual senses dull? Do you hunger and thirst for the things of God? Do you hunger and thirst for time with Him, time in His Word, time in His presence? The terrifying thing about being spiritually asleep is you may not even recognize it. Numbness becomes normal. You just kind of become desensitized. In contrast, listen to someone who was not spiritually asleep, whose spiritual senses were anything but dull, but were on high alert, and he was wide awake. King, or actually, it wasn't King David. It was the sons of Korah. The psalmist says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That was not the testimony of Jonah who was fleeing to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord, right? Which are you? Which are you? When you are walking in humble obedience to God, doing the hard things that he has called you to do by faith, you will hunger and thirst for him. Your spiritual senses will be heightened. You will be awake, even to the point of desperation. Oh God, I need you. I'm desperate for you. In contrast, truth from the tempest number six, the trip to Tarshish numbs our souls to sleep. On to verse seven. And the mariners, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? Verse nine. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, Jonah's got great theology, doesn't he? His doctrine is sound, but his application stinks. Jonah is a hypocrite. His actions, his lifestyle... These are not in line with his beliefs and with his profession of faith, with a confession of his mouth. He talks a good game, but his life contradicts his testimony. I can only imagine these sailors shaking their heads and saying, what? Really? You fear the Lord, the God of heaven and earth? You really fear him? One thing that Jonah said would have definitely gotten the attention of the sailors. What was it? He credits Yahweh the one true living God, with the creation of the sea and the dry land. Now, why would that particular confession have gotten the attention of the sailors? Well, because, oh, it's that God that has been offended. It's that God, and boy, that God is real, isn't he? (laughs) Look at the reality of that God. And they are experiencing that reality firsthand. Crying out to their gods accomplished nothing because they were false gods. But maybe, just maybe, Jonah's God is real. Maybe he's the key. And so verse 10, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? 
for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. <laughs> Interesting how matter of fact Jonah was with that. I, I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. How many people are impacted by Jonah's disobedience? Man, it's, it's interesting when you start to make a list. The captain, the sailors. How about the owners of the ship's cargo? How about all of the Ninevites who need to hear Jonah's message? And at this point, it's believed that Nineveh was a city of about 600,000 people. That's where Jonah was supposed to go. They are impacted directly at this point by Jonah's disobedience. The list could go on and on and on. And the point is this, the truth from the tempest, back to number five, it is this. Our sin always produces collateral damage. Our sin always produces collateral damage. One of Satan's great lies is that your sin is individual, especially if it's secret and no one else knows about it. And that any consequence or disobedience will be limited only to you. But that could not be further from the truth. And it is so vividly illustrated in the story. The next time that Satan tries to whisper that in your ear, please remember the story. Please remember the tempest. Please remember all of the people who are impacted by Jonah's sin and know that that is the way sin works. It not only impacts the person individually, but it ripples and ripples and ripples and ripples. Jonah's sin imperils so many others, which raises the question, how is your journey to Tarshish putting others in danger? How is your journey to Tarshish putting others in danger? Because it is. It's true for everyone, but listen carefully. It is especially true for parents. Parents, your sin has devastating consequences for your children. And if that weren't bad enough, on their children. And if that weren't bad enough, on their children. Generations are literally harmed by your trip to Tarshish, by your unwillingness to obey the hard things that God has called you to do by faith. The truth from the tempest is our sin always produces collateral damage. That's heavy, isn't it? That's heavy truth, and it can be downright discouraging, and there isn't a single one of us that can't look back at our lives and say, oof, I blew it there, and I know people were harmed there. And so the point of this is not to crush us under a load of guilt and shame because we know the truth of the gospel is this, that Jesus removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. We have been cleansed, we have been forgiven, but we know also that the consequences do largely linger. You might think, Chad, if this is what the book of Jonah is all about, why do I want to come back next week? This is depressing. This is discouraging. But here's the thing. Chapter 1, with all of its discouragement, does not leave us without hope. There is actually good news in chapter 1. Literally, we see the gospel in chapter 1. Did you know that? The gospel of Jesus Christ, long before Jesus walked the earth, is here in Jonah 1. Look with me at verse 13. Verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. 
Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now again, here's more irony, isn't there? Pagan sailors care more about life than God's prophet. And they cry out to the one true living God while Jonah remains silent, verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but it would appear to me that these men had a genuine encounter with the one true living God, and they understood his reality, and they have surrendered themselves to this God and are worshiping him. I, I would not be surprised if we would see some of these sailors in heaven one day. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And you probably want to say, Chad, where's the, where's the good news in being swallowed by a great fish? That actually sounds like the opposite of good news. Anybody really excited to get swallowed by a great fish? Well, the good news is this. God could have easily given up on Jonah and left him to drown, to go down, 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 to let his downward spiral reach its ultimate conclusion. But God doesn't do that, does he? Instead, God preserved Jonah's life, as uncomfortable as that preservation was, illustrating truth from the tempest number seven. We serve a God of second chances. We serve a God of second chances. Doesn't matter how many trips to Tarshish you've taken, or if you're on a ship to Tarshish right now, God is at work to bring you home and to offer you the invitation to be made clean and to be made new. And the ultimate expression of the second chance is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is actually beautifully illustrated in these verses. Now, check this out. I hope you saw it. The gospel in Jonah chapter 1. First of all, we see in the Jonah story that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The ship to Tarshish was doomed to destruction. If Jonah kept going in the direction that he was going, fleeing from God, fleeing from Nineveh, Jonah would have died. The wages of sin is death. The ship to Tarshish is doomed to death and destruction. And so it is for all who live in their sin apart from the saving grace of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Next, we see in Jonah's story that man cannot save himself. Think back a few verses. What did the sailors do when the storm intensified and they did not want to throw Jonah overboard? What did they do? They rode harder and harder, doing everything in their power to save themselves. Didn't work, did it? It didn't work. Man cannot save himself. Back in verse 13, again, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Salvation is only by God's grace through faith. And then finally, the gospel in Jonah 1, salvation is by the sacrifice of one for all. There are a couple of theological terms that talk about this, substitutionary atonement and propitiation, and we see both of those at work here. When Jonah the one man was thrown overboard. What happened? The sea grew calm. The sailors were saved. Jonah is a, a twisted type or foreshadowing of Jesus. Jonah was the substitute that brought salvation, and his sacrifice 
satisfy the wrath of God. That's what propitiation is, the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. When Jonah was thrown overboard, propitiation took place as well as substitutionary atonement. And what a beautiful thing it is that we see here, way back in the Old Testament, a foreshadowing of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. And so in this first chapter, we see seven truths from the tempest. Number one, God calls people to do hard things that require faith. Number two, the devil will always provide a ship to Tarshish. Number three, the way to Tarshish is always down. Number four, sometimes our storms are God's severe mercy. Number six, because of Sarah, the trip to Tarshish numbs our souls to sleep. Number five, our sin always produces collateral damage. And number seven, we serve a God of second chances. In light of these questions, I would close, or these truths, I'd close by just putting this, and this would be wonderful uh, lunchtime conversation maybe. Um, which of these seven truths is most meaningful to you today and why? And then lastly, what is God calling you to do about it? Would you pray with me? Father, what a just graphic book Jonah is. Um, it is filled with drama and pictures and characters and dramatic events and these all are there for a very specific purpose, to, to capture our attention and to teach us important truths. And God, I pray that these seven truths would penetrate hearts deeply today. I pray that there would be much fruit that comes from them. And God, I pray for anyone who finds themselves today on that ship to Tarshish. Holy Spirit, would you be heavy upon their hearts? God, may your hand be heavy upon them. God, would you bring them to repentance and assure them that with repentance comes freedom. Restore to them the joy of their salvation. And God, for anyone who is yet to put their faith in Jesus Christ, maybe they come into the category of those sailors who they've been seeking and acknowledging maybe the presence of many gods or no gods or whatever it might be. I pray that maybe even today they have come face to face with the one true living God. May you radically transform and save their lives, even in this very moment. And God, I pray that they would seek out myself, Travis, Pastor David, Pastor Mac, anyone, God, who might be able to, to walk with them and to talk further with them about this on their spiritual journey. So we commit this to you today in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.